Not a lot of people today read ancient philosophy and literature, and that's really too bad. The ancients have a ton to teach us about both their time and ours, and they're just a lot of fun to read, too, or at least many of them are. To get more people excited about turning to texts thousands of years old, I've invited two of my friends on the show today. Brian Wilson is host of the Combat and Classics podcast, and Paul Meany is intellectual history editor at libertarianism.org and host of the podcast Portraits of Liberty. My hope is you'll come out of this show with an overwhelming urge to pick up some Play-Doh. Brian, I'll start with you. Cool. What what drew you to the ancients in the first place? Uh, yeah, I I guess probably the you know there's a lot of paths to Rome. There you go, Paul. Rome, <laughs> Rome time. Thank you very much. Later, uh, but it was you know I kind I wrote this for my admissions essay actually for St. John's College. Um, that in high school, when I think it was like eleventh grade, we're reading Hamlet, and there's the Player King's speech about the sack of Troy and he's dropping all these names and using all this kind of imagery. And I'm like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. And I also remember in, in reading Shakespeare, you know, in high school and trying to dig through the footnotes. Cause I'm just like, I have no clue what's going on. I have no idea what they're talking about. There was all this reference in the footnotes to like Greek gods or Roman gods or Greek mythology, Roman mythology all that stuff. And I was like, I think I have to understand this stuff in order to understand this. Cause like, I kind of dig Shakespeare, but I don't know what he's talking about. So maybe I have to go back. And so, um, you know, I went to the Naval Academy for my undergrad and I was a mechanical engineering major, but we get free books. So I'd go through, buy all my mechanical engineering books. And then I would go through again and buy all of the English and philosophy books. Um, And then I would never do my engineering homework. I would mainly just read like literature and philosophy Uh, because I was just trying to figure out like, what is Shakespeare talking about? He seems to be popular. He seems to have some insight. Uh, How, how can I understand him and the world better? And it seemed to go back to the Greeks. So that was kind of the, the start on the path. How about you, Paul? My story is much less intellectual. (laughs) I was eight years old and I got the game Rome Total War and I decided Romans were very cool and that I would study ancient history. And uh, then I did <laughs> 10 years later or so when I was 18 going into college. So that, that was my, I got in through video games and then I slowly but surely actually started to read things. But it was kind of like a childhood obsession that I had to like rationalize after. So I never was particularly intelligent about it. I So I my interest in this came through philosophy um and and particularly through reading initially plato and then aristotle that you know these things get they get assigned in the classes and what struck me with both of them um and and then drew me into i guess more the genre though i'm not as well read in any of it as either of you um was this bizarre sense of like a shared humanity that you read, so you read Plato, and there's a lot of weird stuff in Plato, and there's a lot of, you know, you can tell this is a different culture, a different time with different assumptions, um, and so he'll say things that that seem odd to modern ears, but remarkably, there's there's so much of it that feels contemporary that these characters, Socrates and his interlocutors, when you're listening to them have conversations with each other, you feel like these are people I could know. These are people I could have a conversation with. The things that they're interested in, 
the questions that they find to be important are the same ones that I'm interested in and that I feel find to be important. And and that that just very profound, it's almost like a spiritual sense of connection to other minds across this extraordinary distance, both in geography and in time, um, gives gives a real sense of just like shared humanity. That that we all people are people, we've always been people, we always will be people, and you can kind of participate in these conversations across the the full range of humanity. Um, and I think that's what that's what initially hooked me because you can reading contemporary people. There's also there's also something fun about the way that the ancients did philosophy. Um, that's very different from the way that contemporary, like kind of post enlightenment philosophy is done, where it thinks of itself as, I guess, less as literature. Like so, Plato's writing. You know, you can put him down as among the great gra- dramatists in history. In addition to being, you know, the the originator of so many of our ideas, and and so that appeal too that it feels more like they are living their ideas, grappling with them as ways to live. It's much less academic and feels much more like literature. But but I think at its core, it was that sense of of shared humanity over distance that really hooked me. I really like that. Oh, go ahead, Paul. I was going to say, I just think that's the power of doing things through dialogue. Like I realize how much more engaging it is when you've got characters talking as opposed to just dry prose. I could, I haven't read so much modern philosophy because it's just prose. I just love the idea of the dialogue being so much more playful and being able to explore so many more options. And like for some authors, it lets them have this kind of level of ambiguity where they let other arguments in and maybe they look like they could possibly win. They just go, oh, I've got to go. See you later. Because it's kind of a drama as well. So I think that's just you know, brilliant. But I never got into it uh, in the same – I wasn't as intellectual when I was into it, but I started reading philosophy when I was about 17 when I decided I'd try and act like a smarter person. And so I said, what do smart people do? So I looked up who was the smartest person on Google, and apparently it said Socrates. But apparently he didn't <laughs> write anything, so I had to read Plato. So it was the next best thing. And I remember reading it as dialogue and being so confused. I thought dialogues were written, you know – fiction books. I just didn't understand what, what was the point of all this. But now looking back, it's it's so much better and so much more exciting, if not a little difficult to get through in your first read. And, you know, Aaron, you I think you wrote about this in an essay on libertarianism.org. I, I vaguely remember reading about, you know, the idea of the cosmopolitan, um, which is just Greek for citizen of the world. And it seems like you know, and especially in libertarian circles where we kind of both decry tribalism, political or national, um, but also <laughs> we're super heavily tribal uh, ourselves in our little in our little movement. Um, but there is something to that uh, finding your tribe when you can talk about things like Plato and Aristotle and Shakespeare or Cicero, and people know what you're talking about. And I think that's kind of what you were describing, and it was certainly something that. And it also ties into what you were just saying, Paul, about, you know, who's the smartest guy and Googling that, right? So I, my dad's not going to listen to this, so I can, you know, say this, but, uh, you know, my dad just watched a lot of TV. <laughs> and um, and so, like, I kind of said, okay, my dad watches a lot of TV and has a lot of wild kind of ideas about how the world works. And then there's all these people that seem to read a lot 
and write a lot, and they have a vastly different idea of how the world works. So I think I want to spend some time with uh, these books uh, to try to figure out how the world works instead of my dad, you know, repeating what he read on, um, you know, repeating what he saw on Fox News. So there is there is to a degree finding your tribe, uh, and it might just be tribalism, but it also might be what you were saying, Aaron, about, you know, the uh, commonality of human nature and that these authors might be the most concise um, expression of what it is to be human and what it is to act like a human and, and feel like a human. And, and I think, too, that, that, that f- part of the reason that I think they're so successful in that or so valuable to read in that is that they were, at least as far as we have written records, they were among the first people trying to figure out that question, right? Like they were humanity. We had, we had progressed to a point where we had enough leisure time, enough built up knowledge and so on to kind of turn our attention to these questions um, in a way, especially in a way outside of really explicit religious grounding. So we were we were examining ourselves as opposed to examining ourselves as subjects of something else. And and so they're wrestling with these questions and and I think part of the reason that there's so much connection is because they were they were setting out the way that we still think about ourselves. And and probably part of that is that they're the intellectual tradition that we're in. And so they, you know, we everything that's come since has built upon them. So we're familiar with them in the same way that like, you know, early rock and roll, like later rock and roll still has Chuck Berry in it. Um, But also they were like, they were discovering these truths for the first time or like really critically examining them or articulating them for the first time. And so there's a freshness to it. That this is like you're witnessing a mind wrestle with these questions and put down answers that largely still feel right for the first time in history, free of a lot of the influences that we have now. Um, and that that makes them – it like kind of crystallizes what they're doing I think that, um, in, this, in this interesting way. Talking about trying to find your tribe though, it helps that they were studied by every educated person – in the European world for such a long time, and the Islamic world to some extent, like people like Avarus and Aristotle. But I think that that's kind of why they kept their value so much was because they were always so different. Because once the you know, the European world became much more Christianized, they were pagans and they were heathens for the most part, but they still saw value in them. And so they always had something that to compare themselves to. And they could say, no, you can still come to the right conclusions even outside of religious doctrine. Even though scripture is always going to be right, we can prove it in other ways as well. And you kind of see that come to the forefront with people like Aquinas going back to Aristotle. And that's why I think that the shared tribe aspect of it is great because uh, every famous person in history read some sort of classics and had some sort of knowledge of it. Yeah, we have this mantra, uh, and I don't like calling it a mantra, but I haven't come up with a better way to describe it, at St. John's, which is um, reason knows no authority. I think Avro said something really similar to that. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a wonderful aphorism whoever started it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh but you know it's interesting when you talk about how, you know, Christianity kind of adopted uh Aristotle and to a degree Plato 
Um, and also what you were saying, Aaron, about the idea that, you know, in Athens, you know, in the fifth century BC was one of the first times that people had, you know, the wealth, really the leisure time to be able to do this. Um, and, and also they had, you know, the freedom to do it as well to a degree, but they also had, you know, a degree of scientific inquiry and that was mostly based on Euclid, right? Like the, the famous saying on the, on the front of the Academy or notionally on the front of Plato's Academy was, um, what was it? It was, um, no man enter who is ignorant of geometry. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so you had to have an understanding of geometry, you know, and it was presumed you did before you could even show up. But I think what's interesting about spending a lot of time with this, because, you know, uh, we've all been reading this for a while and, you know, I just, I just finished actually in February, I finished a class that was the complete works of Plato. And so, and it was just me, my buddy, George, and a bunch of St. John's alums who for two and a half years read every single thing that Plato wrote or even like supposedly wrote. And <laughs> it's, it's, it was so great to do that because when, I think when you go to St. John's, even though you spend a ton of time reading this stuff, you're, you still become like a little bit of a Plato fanboy. Uh, and it's the same with the Iliad, right? Like you read like the Iliad or the Odyssey for the, like the first or second time. And you're like, Oh man, Achilles is rad. Odysseus is so cool. <laughs> and then you spend some more time with this stuff. And you know, like we went through Plato's B sides, right? And so we read the entirety of the laws, <laughs> which is just as long as the Republic and absolutely crazy. You know, I don't know if you guys have read the laws, but you know, it all starts with the idea of setting up a colony and, you know, Plato's character is the stranger. Uh, it's not Socrates, uh, but it basically is. And he's like, well, what we need to do is make sure that when we set up this colony. We need to set it up away from the water, right? We don't want like a really easy harbor so that people can trade and be focused on economic kind of betterment or wealth. They need to be like up in the hills, right? Just kind of scrapping together a subsistence living. And then you're just like, wait, what? <laughs> like like you're you you're from Athens you love Athens Athens is this integral part but you haven't like stepped back to notice that the whole reason or at least a significant reason that you can do this is because you have the freedom to do it and because you're in a very wealthy city where there's so much wealth that you can just like you know bump around at dinner parties and talk about what is virtue and so you can get when you spend time you know wrestling with the ideas yourself or with a group without like a specific, you know, uh, pedagogue to lead you through it, you can go, I don't think Socrates knew anything about economics. And I no. don't think he necessarily understood the idea of freedom that well either. Cause he also talks about in the laws, how Egypt has great laws because everything is regulated. And you're reading this as kind of like a libertarian or you're reading this, you know, reading Plato for, you know, however, for two and a half years and you start going, hang on. <laughs> I was going to say, what I find interesting is that yeah. Frederick Bastiat, he viewed the most, uh, in the laws, it's kind of a, no one really comments on it too much, but in uh, Frederick Bastiat's The Law, he talks about how the most dangerous thing in France is classical learning, because the ancients thought you could organize literally everything to some massive nth degree, like when you read The Republic mm -hmm. and you read all the, the crazy ideas about how we should have communal families and whatnot, and how mm -hmm. we shouldn't really own any too much property, and then like, even like, ancient people like like Kyrgyz who founded Sparta having the the vinegar soaked iron as money 
and you mm-hmm. pick your daughter, you're not your daughter, you pick your wives randomly at night. And so I've ever, this is my little uh, jab against the Greeks, is that Greek political thought starts out extremely anti-democratic and extremely crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people give it way too much credit, I think. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with that. And I kind of blame Euclid. <laughs> I have this, I have this kind of, uh, this book in me that's waiting to come out that is basically like how geometry um, because it was the foundation of kind of Greek philosophical thought to some degree or another, because it always gives you neat, concrete answers than one expected your philosophy and by extension, your law to give you always neat, concrete answers. When in actuality, the world is a quantum world, right? It's built of probabilities, even in the scientific realm, it's built on probabilities, but because of just the nature of the understanding of the universe at that point, and the fascination with Euclid, they wanted concrete answers. They wanted concrete propositions. They wanted these eternal forms, as Plato called them, instead of going, well, sometimes this and sometimes that, you know, but they didn't really embrace that kind of thinking. They were like, no, if everybody has to be the same and have the same laws and the same fundamental concepts. So we have to build a system based on that. And that's why you get stuff in the Republic like I think it's book six where they're like, uh, I think Glaucon's like, well, how do we do this? Because the adults are going to not be used to this, you know? And Plato's like, oh, uh, or Socrates is like, no, that's no problem. We're going to kick all the adults out and just keep the kids and then we'll raise them in this system. And, you know, all the adults are banished and you're just like, wait, what? <laughs> you're going to, you're going to kidnap all the children as the part, like the key part of founding the ideal state. Um, and it's it's interesting to approach this from a libertarian point of view because I was the only like libertarian in this Plato class, and I just kept pounding on this point of, wait, we're going to kidnap all the kids, um, and nobody really had a good answer to that uh, except for, and I, I buy this to a certain degree, the proposition that you know Socrates um, and Plato's main kind of point, if he had one, wasn't necessarily the forms or what is virtue or anything like that. It's wrestle with these ideas yourself, you know, mm-hmm. it's that it's up to you to do this. How much of this is psychology in terms of Plato being influenced by the messiness of Athenian democracy killing Socrates mm. that, you know, he's watched, he's watched his mentor, his teacher be be killed by kind of the the common riffraff voting on something and so this is a you know no we're going to have like really strict rules and they happen to be really strict rules that elevate the philosophers but like you know i'm just going to set out a system that makes sure no miscarriage of justice like this ever happens again but before we condemn all of athens for killing the smartest man alive like john Stuart mill will do on liberty let's give them some credit they only gave him a fine. He decided to not pay the fine himself and drink the hemlock. And on top of that, he was associated with all of their 30 tyrants who took over Athens after uh, the Peloponnesian War. Alcibiades is in the symposium after all. So Socrates was a, a little anti-democratic, and I can see why they'd be afraid of him at least. Not a little anti-democratic, actually the foremost mind of being anti-democratic, I guess. Which is also what a what a contradiction, you know? He's like, I could never leave Athens. I could never go anywhere else. This is this is where I'm supposed to be. I just don't like anything that they're doing in terms of economics or democracy or anything like that. And you're what? just like, wait, what? It well, and what's interesting there is that his 
when he's setting out his reasons for why he shouldn't run off after he's been condemned, um, he's this supremely anti-democratic guy, but then one of his core arguments is basically the weight of democratic authority, that the people decided this, and I've been an Athenian citizen my whole life, and part of being that is to abide by the decisions of the Athenian state and its people. Yeah, there seems to be a contradiction there. Right. And then there's something different about Socrates and Plato is that Plato goes off and tries to educate tyrants and tries to make the perfect system in his world. And then I think it was um, Heidegger later on when he tried to talk to Hitler, he came back and his professors at his college said, how was Syracuse referencing Plato? <laughs> for, for our listeners that don't know, that is the sickest of sick burns right there. <laughs> <laughs> It hurts. Yeah, we actually did the we did the letters uh, in that Plato class, and you're reading this. Um, you know, what was it? Was it Cleo who was the dictator of Syracuse? I think I'm looking, I I remember there's a few of them. There are always so many. I can never remember. I'm trying to yeah, but basically Plato like is sending a letter. Uh, has has there's like twelve letters, and several of them deal with. Um, I think it's Cleo, but I could totally be wrong. Um, this dictator in Syracuse who has like quasi kidnapped a buddy of Plato's, um, you know, because initially hired him to be kind of a consigliere and then was like, I don't really like this guy. So I'm just going to kidnap him. And then I'm going to ransom his son. And Plato's still goes <laughs> and it's like, no, I can, I can fix this. I can, I can get this guy squared away. Like he says he loves philosophy. So, and I'm the guy and it's, you know, it, it's hilarious and also utterly predictable, you know, to us who are reading this and going, so you got this guy who has absolute power over everything. He's not been afraid to use it in the past. And you're going to go over there and read to him some of your dialogues <laughs> and fix There's it. There's no better way to convince him. <laughs> that's That'll definitely work. You should definitely do that. Like that's, yeah. This puts me in mind to not to get too contemporary, but. It seems an awful lot like the the national conservative intellectuals <laughs> writing their um, oh, yeah. their treatises on liberalism and individuality as an attempt to kind of intellectualize Trumpism. And mm -hmm. I can just imagine like Josh Hawley, who I think is wrong about almost everything, but is a quite intelligent man um, sitting down with Donald Trump and trying to talk him through the the philosophy of collectivist conservatism. Yeah. And I mean, this, this comes down to, you know, everybody seems to have an answer, but not a lot of people don't have the right questions is, is kind of a way I would describe that. Right. Um, most of modern political discourse is debate style, uh, which I find very repetitive and boring uh, because most debate style stuff can be stopped very quickly when you just ask the question, how do you know that? Uh, and there's, I, I do, and it's, it's such, and it's considered such a, a tool bag move <laughs> when you ask that question. <laughs> um, and I'm totally ripping off the second Alcibiades dialogue when I do this because Alcibiades and so I don't even remember what they're talking about. Um, and this is also like one of those questionable dialogues where they're not sure if, you know, Plato even wrote it, but who cares? And Alcibiades is, you know, talking, saying some stuff. And Socrates goes, how do you know that? And Alcibiades goes, what? 
And he's like, well, did, did you discover it or did somebody tell you that? And he's very confused. <laughs> and it's like kind of a insulted. gentleman's agreement not to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's a gentleman's agreement not to do that, which I think is a terrible gentleman's agreement because the only way you can know something is if you discover it or if somebody told you. And so I will ask these types of questions in political conversations slash debates and just go, how do you know that? And they'll be like, what? Well, did somebody tell you that or did you discover it yourself? And they'll be like, Nine times out of 10. And this is with very smart people, kind of like the, you know, the guy you were talking about, Aaron. And they'll go, well, everybody knows this. And it's like, wait, (laughs) I don't know this. Uh, So I'd like to find out how you found out about it, because if you discovered it, then great. And but if somebody told you that who like what this is, whether it's, you know, we need a flat tax or whether it's, you know, we need mail in voting or whatever, I would just like to know how you came to this answer because it's just telling me it or appealing to authority or saying well this you know it was on cnn or it was written by whoever i'm like i I don't care like what is the truth in this and where did it come from and that's the fastest way to end any political conversation is to ask that question i think that too is one of the the reasons plato um, reading plato is so powerful as an introduction to philosophy. Like I still think if if someone asked me like I've never read any philosophy, what's the first thing that I should read? Um I would probably choose some platonic dialogue. In part because it's a dialogue and for all the reasons Paul gave, like dialogues are a, a wonderful way to communicate these kinds of ideas um and because it's so clear, like the prose is easy to read and so on. But but it like it nails that kind of philosophical move, that philosophical mindset of Socrates is a guy who went around Athens irritating the hell out of people by just asking them that question. The godfly. Like, how do you know that? How are you certain about that? Like, have you thought this through? I'm just going to pepper you with questions until you, you know, eventually decide to put me to death. Uh, <laughs> but but that that's that's like the core of it. And that's like, I think what, you know, anyone who becomes anyone who becomes fascinated with philosophy like that's where that fascination starts is with all of these things that we kind of assume to be true and asking, you know, well, is it true? How do I know it? You know, where, what's backing this up and so on. Um, and that, that questioning. And I think again, like the Greeks, it's, it's particularly acute in the Greeks because so many of them are like asking these questions for the first time. Right. So we don't have 2,500 years of built up answers to them. And so basically no one's no one's been asked to explain themselves. No one's been asked, like, how do you know that before? I was going to say on the topic of uh, the first book to get some interest in an ancient philosophy, I once gave my friend's mother the Euthyphro dialogue, and she was also a minister, so it was even better to hear her opinion on divine command theory and how that all works. I think Euthyphro is my favorite introduction. But I first read Plato's Republic, which in all honesty I thought was really silly. And I didn't get why anyone thought this was a good idea. And I remember I was reading the introduction, the Penguins edition, and I had that Whitehead quote, all of philosophy is footnotes to Plato. And I said, I hope not. Um, and so then I was like, that was terrible. And so then someone told me, well, Aristotle gets more right. And I was like, oh, okay, well, we'll see where that goes. And so I kind of just chronologically read most of philosophy. And that's how I got there. Just start with the Greeks and move forward. So if you don't like Plato, you'll like Aristotle. It's fine. Well, that that pivot to Aristotle that strikes me. So, Brian, going back to your you know geometry point about kind of trying to establish these these perfect forms and starting in in 
geometry, but then moving as Plato does into basically all concepts and ideas have these these perfect, unchanging geometric forms. This this pivot to to Aristotle seems interesting because he he seems like a repudiation of a lot of that. And in in that maybe it's because he instead of starting in geometry or at least geometry adjacent thinking, he starts in biology, which is much messier, and starts in, you know, I'm going to look at the messiness of the world and try to extract concepts and ideas from that. And he also seems, I mean, he's no he's by no means like a liberal in in our modern sense, but his his politics is at least much more like liberal compatible than Plato's. Yeah, and I, I think that you're right on with touching on biology as as the reason behind that, right? Because I think that you it's not impossible for you to study biology um and become a command and control <laughs> political thinker, but it's really hard, right? Because you see emergent order in biology. And this is this is something that I, you know, talk about with people frequently is either through biology or through linguistics. You know, I just say, like, what how are we talking the way we're talking right now? You know, did somebody come up with this as a system, you know, or did we just all kind of agree in some weird emergent way that this is kind of how we're going to do things, but we don't need any kind of regulatory apparatus for it to happen. It just kind of happens. And that I think is a very interesting counterpoint to the idea of geometry, right? The idea of geometry is something that we have observed in a weird kind of way and created a system that kind of describes it, but it still has some significant flaws in it. And I just point to the first proposition in Euclid saying a point is that which has no part, right? <laughs> which if you, I mean, we spent at St. John's, we literally spent like an entire class, like two hours just talking about that proposition because can something like that exist in the universe? Something that has no part, you know? Uh, a line is lengthless breadth. Okay, what does that mean in the real world? And so it's really hard to transition those type of mental models into the real world because they don't exist in the real world. Whereas something like a biological order or something like the study of linguistics, you can kind of see that there is a consistency there between you know the entirety of science and the entirety of the human existence, as opposed to this weird mental model you know, called geometry that we just kind of made up that has some applicability, but doesn't extend itself to everything. Brian, Paul and I both mentioned Plato as a place to start. Um, where would you, if, if someone came to you and said, like, I've never read any of this stuff, mm-hmm. where would you point them? And it doesn't have to be philosophy. Like, just Yeah, I mean, ancient- I the first thing that comes to mind is the Mino and the reason it does is because that seems to point in it's a weird dialogue for a lot of reasons, but it also points to the fact that anybody can figure this out. Um, you know, that that is the, you know, Socrates asking, you know, a slave boy about geometry and he figures it out and he's never been taught it. And so this is kind of like the counterpoint to um, or an illustration of that Alcibiades, second Alcibiades dialogue. 
where and and Socrates points this out in a very clear manner in the Mino, where he's like, "No, you, you can. This is inside you. We all kind of know this. We just have to be kind of asked the right questions to bring it out." So I really like the Mino, but I'd also, you know, going back to like my first point about Shakespeare, um, and this is, you know, like I'm I'm an entrepreneur. I've been in you know the fitness business, the food business, the performing arts business, and so. And, and people know I spend a decent amount of time reading. And so they come to me for kind of reading advice and I go, just read anything. I don't care. Yeah. Totally. Um, one page of philosophy is better than zero pages of philosophy is always my idea. And I mean, yeah, I totally agree. And I don't care if it's Harry Potter, but if you, if you read uh, and keep reading, I think you're going to get back to this sooner or later, you know? And the example I always give is uh, I was a big uh, 70s rock fan <laughs> in the nineties, I grew up in Maryland near Baltimore and there was this, uh, radio station, 104.3, the cult that just played like seventies rock. And, and it was a lot of crappy stuff. It was like Creedence Clearwater revival. And I can't, ZZ top is mostly good, especially I'm in Texas. So I have to say that now, but, um, you know, I got really into Eric Clapton and this was an Eric Clapton's like super pop, like rock eighties stuff too. Um, and like, I remember, uh, getting super into Clapton and his cheesy, like adult contemporary stuff. But what happened was, is some of his, you know, kind of blues canon was still making an appearance in these pop records of the eighties and nineties. And I was like, man, I really dig this. And then that got, that got me back to Muddy Waters and BB King and Sunhouse and Lead Belly and Robert Johnson. And when you get to Robert Johnson, you're basically dealing with like the Plato of blues music, <laughs> you know, but it's probably going to start on some like three minute pop hit that you heard on the radio that was like a terrible cover. But if you get into blues sooner or later, you're going to get to Robert Johnson probably. Uh, and so this is why I'm like, dude, read Thoreau, <laughs> like read Emerson, read whoever you want to read, read Shakespeare. You're going to get to the Greeks sooner or later. I remember Michel de Montaigne. Uh, yeah. T- he used to always say he didn't even really like most of the ancient authors that much and thought Plato was really boring. But he's still an extremely smart guy. You don't have to read it all or read all the Republic. Just read selections, skim through them, look, read the introductions, the Penguin editions. That's always good. Literally do anything because it's better to read something than completely nothing. I feel people are so intimidated that they have to read these massive books. When I first started reading philosophy, I decided... I will only ever, well, for the beginning, I'll just read books under 100 pages. And it turns out there's lots of important books under 100 pages, and you feel really smart about it. So it was pretty, it was much easier to do that. And I think another key is don't try very hard. This is always something that I kind of get in trouble with, especially running a podcast that's about close reading of ancient works. But, you know, I try to tell people all the time, like, don't try really hard. Like if you're reading something and you just zone out and you're like, what just happened in the last five pages? Like, just keep going. You know, like your subconscious is kind of paying attention. So you don't really need to try that hard, especially if it's your first time through, just kind of hang out, you know, treat it like, uh, treat it like a little, you know, social call, where, you know, if you want to glance at your phone, if you're having coffee with Plato and you want to glance at your phone a couple times, like that's fine. Like Plato's not going to be upset. You're not, you're going to get the gist of the conversation. And I think what that does is it allows, it allows your kind of, uh, forebrain 
to wonder, which is what the forebrain wants to do, right? It wants to just kind of like, it doesn't want to, you know, make an outline, you know, and write an essay. It just wants to kind of hang out and think about this stuff in a very low pressure kind of way. So, you know, absolutely read Plato and don't try very hard. And if you read the entirety of the Republic and you go, I got nothing from that, you're wrong. You probably did. But it's kind of something that your subconscious is meditating on and your forebrain's trying to like figure out and parse together and find a pattern and may or may not be there. But, you know, read anything and don't try very hard is Brian's guide to like philosophy. I, I like that. I like that a lot because that's the experience reading for me, reading Aristotle is if I if I tried to understand every word that I was reading as I'm going through the ethics or the politics I would go nuts. Um, but but you're right. If you just sit back and let it wash over you, you'll pick up most of the ideas and an appreciation for them. Um, and in fact, I I discovered several years back that – so there are lots of people on Audible, the, the website for audiobooks. There are lots of people who want to become narrators, but it's hard to become a narrator if you don't have a portfolio. And so they will – produce audiobooks of public domain texts as a way to do that. And you can find a lot of the classic works of philosophy because Plato and Aristotle are way out of copyright at this point. Um, and and of course, Plato works really well in audio because it's dialogues. Um, but Aristotle works remarkably well in audio. I've listened to both the ethics and the politics as audiobooks. And I highly recommend it because having a good narr- first having a good narrator a good narrator is good at helping you understand a text by where they place emphasis how they pace themselves and so on um but also it allows you I think to do almost quite literally what you're describing Brian which is to just let it wash over you listen to it in this this comfortable way you kind of can't stop when you stumble over something. You're forced to just keep going with it. You can glance at your phone if you want to. Um, but it I listening to the ancients in audio has been a really rewarding and pleasurable experience. And also that's the way they were meant to be read. I think the first person who's recorded to actually read silently, sitting on their own, is uh, the teacher of Augustine of Hippo, I think it is. He's the first person, like very later on, the Greeks and Romans, they always read things out loud. And it makes sense because there were dialogues, right? So it makes perfect sense to listen to these things out loud. Almost a better way. I, I'm curious now, we started, we talked a bit about cosmopolitanism. And one of the notable things that's happened in my intellectual journey over the last several years is, um, is branching out of the ancient Western tradition and discovering Indian and Chinese contemporary thinkers and and seeing these these really rich alternative intellectual traditions that are a challenge because you're kind of I mean the Greeks the Greeks are foreign like we're not we're not Greeks they're written in a different language that you know I don't think any of us speak at least not fluently uh, and and yet, because they're so much like a part of our intellectual upbringing, we kind of can get it, whereas these other traditions are somewhat alien, but but have huge value on their own. And I guess I'm curious, why 
why is that? Like, why do so many people who are really interested in this this broader set of ideas and are willing to wrestle with texts as difficult as a lot of these can be tend to be almost like provincial in in what they'll approach and and then one of the frustrating things there's there's an article several years back i think in the new york times um in their the stone blog which was their philosophy blog that was something like let's call western philosophy let's call philosophy departments what they really are and so it's an argument that we should call philosophy departments western philosophy departments because in the same way that we call literature departments english literature departments um, just to acknowledge that you know you're doing like one small slice of philosophy, and I think, pro- I think the problem goes even deeper though. It's not just the it's not just provincial. It's that there's a canon because there's tons of philosophers in the Western world who are completely ignored. There's so many that are absolutely massive. I just did a podcast on a guy called Francois Poulain de la Barre, a philosopher who argued that women should be entirely equal to men and be allowed to pursue any profession they want, and the state should not be involved in this whatsoever in the 16th century he is more egalitarian than any person at the time like you know he's more modern than any of them has all these brilliant ideas talks about he talks a lot about descartes and how the influence of prejudice upon our minds and how that's like you know it's not rational that we have these ideas it's just because we haven't thought about them long and hard enough and they get ingrained over culture and tradition over time but uh the first time someone found his books was henry pierron a french psychologist who picked up one of his books and realized that the pages were uncut meaning no one had read it. And at the time when he wrote his arguments, uh, they were so radical that most people thought he was joking. And so I think it's all about, it's not just being provincial, it's about a canon. Because there's tons of great philosophers out there who just aren't paid attention to whatsoever. Like, you probably have a few opinions on Xenophon as well, uh, Aaron. I know no one really pays attention to him too much, even because he makes, you know... He's wonderful. Socrates Light, who just gives you like, oh, drink eight glasses of water and be nice. (laughs) Not the same level of advice, but I think it's, it's mostly everyone. About- everyone who likes reading Jane Austen for kind of that like Victorian stuffiness should read Xenophon because he's he's the same dude. He's like this upper class guy who comes across as like he's connected with lots of smart people, but he's not as smart himself, and <laughs> and he's wonderful. I love reading Xenophon. Well, part of it is just like the measure of success that we have the most repetition with, right? Uh, if you look at like the school system and this goes back to our kind of, you know, or my, my point about the, where did you find this out? Right. That everybody knows it is that I feel like when you go through 12 or 16 or however many years of school and your reps, you know, what you do every day is just repeat back what you're told then. And this is, this is what academics excelled at, right? That's how they became academics to a certain extent is they excelled at somebody tells you something and you repeat it back. And so of course we have this thing called the canon because everybody that went through was reading the same thing. It was, it had a pattern to it. It was Greek. It was Rome. It was Europe. It was America. And you know, congratulations. Like you've, you've, you've entered the tribe. You've excelled at repeating back what we told you. Um, you know, this is the most important stuff and you'll be measured by, uh, your peers as to how well, you know, this stuff, but knowing Lao Tzu or, or, or knowing the fundamental text of Buddhism, like you're not going to be, there's not going to be a quiz on that. So you don't really need to know it. And so it talk, it, it, it belies our, constricted understanding of the world but it's based on our constricted education model 
um, both in terms of subject matter and in terms of style. And, you know, this comes back to the debate question, right? Like everybody wants to debate, um, because everybody's been told something by somebody and wants to defend that because they like that somebody versus, you know, these, these are my ideas. I have wrestled with them. I have worked through them both, uh, intuitively, um, and empirically. And I am also open to being wrong. <laughs> you know, nobody does that. Nobody goes into conversations the way Socrates goes into conversations and says, I don't know anything. Uh, I'm just trying to learn from you. I'm trying to find out what this stuff is too. And it's yet another thing that societally, like I, uh, you know, I hang out a lot in theater land right now. Um, and like performance arts and start a conversation or work into a conversation. Like, I don't know anything. And people get really upset (laughs) that you make that. Like, I'm like, how is this insulting to you in any way? When I go, you know more about this than I do. Because they think that I'm fucking with them. They think that I'm messing with them. And I'm like, no, no, no. I really don't think I know anything. And I think that that comes back to this pedagogical model of, you know, repeat what you've been told. And and also there's the Tinkerbell effect, right? If you just believe in it hard enough, like it'll be true. You can fly. So there's a lot of these weird um, structures to our ideas that don't make a lot of sense, but that we accept nonetheless. So I'm going to, I'm going to agree and disagree because I think a lot of the time it changes. I think there's two points to make is the first one I like a lot is that I was reading recently, I was reading about Mencius, the ancient Chinese philosopher. And there's a 19, I was looking around, I was trying to find as much as I could in them. And I found some dissertation from 1916 from a Jesuit priest trying to argue that Plato and Mencius are similar. He ends up coming to the conclusion that Mencius is actually way cooler than Plato and has much better ideas and has much more understanding about economics and a free society and whatnot and anti-war behavior. So I was like, great, cool. And I think the best part is when people bring their homely tradition of whatever they've been brought up with or whatever they've learned before and try to apply it to newer philosophies or different philosophies. And that's why... I'm going to eventually argue that the Romans are better than the Greeks is because they have more perspective and they're less abstract and they've seen more of the world and they've, they've been around, which is why the Greeks could make the idea of cosmopolitanism, but the Romans could really articulate it better. In my eyes. That's what you're saying about um, certain curriculums just being repeating the same thing over and over again. I agree with that entirely because so many great philosophers were people who hated their education curriculums with a passion. Uh, that guy Poulain said, it's actually better women don't get educated because the curriculum is so bad and such a waste of time. Uh, Cesar Beccaria, a guy who argued against the death penalty and torture, he also just didn't enjoy his classical curriculum whatsoever. Frederick Bastiat seemingly liked classics but didn't like people who liked classics. <laughs> but yeah, it seems like the curriculum, like the freer, more open and more to different influences. And of course, people like Aquinas, well, they had to read Averroes and Aristotle. You couldn't just read Aristotle. You had to get the translator, of course. So I think when people shut them off to the wider world of philosophy, it is a shame that philosophy can just become dead white men. And then there's also the female philosophers out there, and there's so many. There's the famous Mary Estelle who said uh, to John Locke, well, not to John Locke, but in reply to John Locke, if all men are born free, why are women slaves? People forget about that because she's not a, a big name. But the names change, and they, they constantly change. Henry George, the economist, who argued for... Uh, a land tax was massively popular in Ireland because most of us were tenants to the point where almost um, like it almost outsold the Bible. Cicero was the most until the 1800s. It is pretty, pretty much 
solid fact that Cicero was one of the most read people in the Western world. But after that, it kind of just dies off. It changes constantly and not always for the better. Well, it's also like in, in terms of sales numbers, it, I didn't know this, but it was probably about two or three years ago. I found out that Thomas Paine um, had actually been the, 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 uh, his common sense was the highest uh, purchased, had the highest book sales in America uh, up until like, 2006 or something weird like that like the common sense and i'm like i'm kind of and i you kind of read that and then you look around and go wait did people actually read this <laughs> like this is calling for like widespread revolution and you know complete uh autonomy of the individual more or less and then you look at the current state of politics and you go, I don't, are people just buying this and not reading it or, or what's going on? I'm ask both of you, you both have podcasts. Everybody's got a podcast. Everybody's got and a podcast. As we're in quarantine, podcast economy. Probably a podcast boom going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but so let me ask each of you about your shows and how they fit into the conversation we've been having today. And Paul, I'll start with you because I think the the stuff you just raised about women and people outside the canon fits in quite well with your show. So what is your show? What's it about? Okay. My show is called Portraits of Liberty. Portraits of Liberty. There we go. Can't mumble. And it's mostly about, it's a broad tent approach. It's not asking for you know anyone to be a massive libertarian or an anarchist or anything like that. It's more just talking about people who've been neglected in the canon of philosophy who argued for a much freer world. Because I realized I used to have a very chauvinistic opinion of philosophy that the people who were read most were the best and there's a reason for it and all that but then i realized there's so many people out there who had such brilliant ideas who were either completely ignored or were massively influential in their time and then we just kind of stopped thinking about them because their reforms were done and it's good to celebrate them and so i cover hopefully well i've covered already a lot of different kinds of topics but the ideal is to cover people from all different kinds of places times backgrounds ethnicities everything under the sun hopefully because every different place has its own traditions, which mold in different ideas, and every place has had some sort of liberty-oriented ideas before, but they've just been forgotten about a lot of the time. So the first few episodes I have, I have my first ever episode is on Christine de Pizan, who's a medieval woman in the 1400s who argues in a book called The City of Ladies that women are capable of virtue. And that sounds like nothing to us. Like That sounds like a really boring argument. But in her day, women were really, really, really hated. And there's so many different books. And like all of our ancient philosophers that we love so much, sorry, they had terrible opinions on women. They have the worst opinions. Aristotle thought that women were like uh, mutilated men or inside out men. He thought they were always the inferior and whatnot. So she had to basically argue against a thousand years of misogynistic rhetoric in this one book. But she'd never be put in a history of freedom per se because she argued such a mild point. But that mild point was massive for the time. I think it's important to appreciate that kind of thing, those slow kind of changes. And and Brian, um, your Combat and Classics, I think is interesting because it's not just a show about ancient literature, but it's it comes out of like trying to teach, to introduce ancient literature to a particular audience that probably hasn't been 
exposed to it much. So you can tell us about the show and kind of what you've learned about exploring ancient literature by talking to this audience. Yeah. Well, the first thing I've learned is that there's not a lot of Casper money in teaching classical literature to a military audience. <laughs> like I haven't gotten that that phone call <laughs> yet <laughs> yeah. to sell mattresses. Uh, you know, Joe Rogan's been blowing up my phone, but I'm just like, Joe, when you hit the big time, maybe I'll have you on. But <laughs> until then, <clears throat> just Aaron and Paul can come on, but that's about it. Um, yeah. So th- it, it's an interesting story that it kind of came out of, um, you know, I went to the Naval Academy, uh, graduated in 2000, uh, joined the Marine Corps, became counterintelligence officer. Uh, 9-11 happens. Uh, I'm gone for the next, you know, four years deployed pretty much uh, every year. And then um, went into the reserves uh, and started St. John's College. Uh, so I had a day job with Naval Special Warfare. And at night, I drive out to Annapolis and sit around and read Plato and um, Aristotle and Shakespeare and, and that kind of thing. And I saw a lot of similarities with, uh, believe it or not, Marine Corps doctrine <laughs> and what I was learning at St. John's. Uh, because we have a uh, doctrinal publication called MCDP-1 Warfighting that talks a lot about emergent systems. It talks a lot about developing people's judgment, not necessarily, you know, along with technical skills, but technical skills. But the most important thing uh, in developing leaders is developing judgment. And, you know, I'd spent a decent amount of time reading this stuff kind of on my own uh, in, in my undergrad and also just when I was in the Marine Corps, like I still have a copy of the Iliad with, you know, notes from second Lieutenant Wilson, who's like writing about maneuver warfare and the margins of the Iliad and silly stuff like that. <laughs> um, and so I did three semesters at St. John's, uh, for my master's and had to put the fourth one on hold because I had opened a business and was just kind of running around like crazy. Um, but in order to stay, uh, in the reserves, I needed to go to command and staff college, which is notionally a master's degree level, um, kind of professional development course that, you know, last two years. And when I started, you know, it was, I just finished, you know, my third semester of St. John's and now I'm rolling into this command and staff college, which is a bunch of my peers, you know, people who are Oh three Oh four, uh, captain and major types, uh, who are doing their professional military education. And, you know, we're reading stuff like Sun Tzu and, um, you know, we're reading some foundational texts about war and that kind of stuff. And, you know, at the end of the first six week, uh, block of classes, we have to write like our final paper. And I wrote it about Sun Tzu and I got the lowest grade in my class. <laughs> and my, my professor kind of pulled me aside after this and was like, major Wilson, what exactly were you trying to do here? And I just said, well, I was just having kind of a dialectic here with Sun Tzu about his four pillars of warfare. And I just wanted to, you know, kind of have a conversation with him. I didn't write it in a dialogue, but I took that approach of I'm having a conversation with this guy and myself about these four pillars and whether or not they're he's accurately defined them or defined them at all and how they intertwine. And and he's just like, Brian, 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 you're doing some of that St. John's College stuff. <laughs> And I need you to do a little bit more like Oklahoma A&M kind of thing, you know? And he handed me another paper by a guy in the class and was like, this is a really good paper. I want you to read this. And it was just a book report. You know, there was no original thinking in there. There was no analysis. It was just like, this is what Sun Tzu said. And I went, holy fuck, this is a giant waste of time. Like I, if, if this is, and I'd already seen it cause it's supposed to be like a seminar class where you talk. 
but everyone was basically, if you repeat what the professor says or repeat what the book says, good job. And if you don't, uh, you're going to get the lowest grade in the class. So I survived another six weeks of that. And then I quit (laughs) because I just couldn't take it. And I, you know, have a bit of a rebellious uh, streak in me. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to blow up the entire uh, military education system. Uh, They need to be doing, you know, if we're trying to do judgment, if we're trying to do original thought, we need to wrestle with the classics, whether it's classics on war, classics in general, and the style of learning is a total piece of shit. So I'm going to blow it up. And so I was like, we're going to start doing seminars on bases. I'm going to infiltrate basically these bases by just calling people I know and saying, hey, do you want to do a lunch seminar on Machiavelli? So we started doing that. Um, we started just, you know, basically kind of pirate uh, seminars on bases. And then that translated to uh, starting to doing the pod to kind of give a sample of what people can expect. Um, and we're still going and we've been doing that for, gosh, a long time. It's It's been a long, it's probably been about seven years where we've been doing seminars and podcasts and that kind of stuff. Um, and, and the whole idea is, you know, I'm less, um, hopeful that we're going to destroy the military education system, but I'm, I'm at least hopeful that we're going to reach people like me, right. Uh, That me, when I was in the military, right. Who are, you know, kind of sitting around when they're not deployed, who want to kind of wrestle with these big questions and understand in a deep and meaningful way, why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and try to explore these kind of deep foundational concepts of what it means to be a human and kind of our tagline for combat and classics is, you know, understanding the nature of man and conflict and cooperation. Right. Cause I think if you frame it that way, um, you get a much more thoughtful and interesting point of view of the people that you're fighting in a war and also the people that are helping you in a war, whether they're Marines or whether, you know, as a counterintelligence guy, I spent most of my time talking to uh, Iraqis and Somalis and Bosnians and stuff like that. So I had a very different perspective than, you know, people that were just on patrol and never got to talk to these folks. Um, and I just wanted to, you know, allow that conversation to take place and hopefully provide a bit of solace for, you know, folks that were doing that kind of work and going, I don't think anybody understands this. I don't understand. I think anybody understands the nuance of warfare as a study of human nature. So I just wanted to try to explore that a little bit. And if Casper's listening, I'm still waiting for your call. <laughs> 